You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Possible data exposure at the Philippines' office of the Solicitor General. In the U.S., FISA surveillance targets dropped during 2020's pandemic. The Babak gang says it's giving up encryption to concentrate on doxing. A new version of the viewer loader is out in the wild. Rick Howard looks at security in the energy sector. Betsy Carmelite from Booz Allen Hamelite on telemedicine security concerns. And the U.S. Justice Department undertakes a review of its cybersecurity policies and strategy. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, May 3rd, 2021. London-based security outfit Turgensec says that the Philippines' office of the Solicitor General left about 345,000 documents exposed to the Internet, GMA New Online reports. Philippine authorities are investigating. Turgensec says the data was exposed for about two months and that it appears to have been accessed by a third party. The company says it disclosed the exposure to Philippine authorities on March 1st and March 24th. The exposure was closed on April 24th. According to Turgensec, data exposed includes hundreds of thousands of files ranging from documents generated in the day-to-day running of the Solicitor General of the Philippines to staff training documents, internal passwords and policies, staffing payment information, information on financial processes and activities, including audits, and several hundred files titled with presumably sensitive keywords such as private, confidential, witness, and password. The exposure, the company says, appears to have been a matter of database misconfiguration. The AP says that the number of surveillance warrants issued in the U.S. under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act fell off sharply during 2020. A report on FISA surveillance, part of the intelligence community's annual statistical transparency report issued Friday by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, attributes the decline in large part to the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The New York Times reports that the report listed just 451 targets of wiretaps and search warrants under FISA last year. The report notes that many factors contributed to the statistical shifts and fluctuations that show up in this annual assessment, but that in this case, quote, ODNI assesses that in calendar year 2020, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic likely influenced target behavior, which in turn may have impacted some of the numbers reported for that year, end quote. 
so the pandemic affected those being watched more than it did the watchers. The Babuk ransomware gang says, according to the record, that it intends to give up ransomware attacks after its current caper directed against the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police. This is not due to an attack of conscience, however, nor to any newfound sense of public spirit or civility. It's just that Babuk has found it easier to simply steal documents and extort money by threatening their release. So, online extortion, which began by encrypting data to deny it to their owners and moved to a double extortion by not only encrypting information but also threatening to make it public, may be moving to a third doxing-only stage. In any case, paying ransom seems to be making less sense than ever before. Forbes reports that 92% of victims who pay don't get their files back. So this part of the bandit economy seems to have eaten its own business model. No more golden eggs from this particular well-cooked goose. Researchers at security firm Proofpoint have found a new form of the Buer loader. Buer is commodity malware traded widely in criminal markets. It's distributed by email and permits its criminal users to install further malware packages on its victims' devices. It's a first-stage loader for additional payloads, Proofpoint says, including Cobalt Strike and multiple ransomware strains, as well as possibly providing victim access to other threat actors in the underground marketplace. The emails represent themselves as shipping documents from logistics company DHL. They are, of course, spoofed emails, and the attachments that carry the Buer payload are malicious Microsoft Word or Excel files. Proofpoint expects the campaign to continue. The Washington Post reports that the U.S. Justice Department has begun a 120-day review of its cybersecurity policies. Prompted by the Solar Winds incident, which many see as a bellwether of future attack trends, the department's review is intended to examine ways justice might better deter and defend against cyber attacks. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco said Friday, quote, We need to rethink and really assess, are we using the most effective strategies against this kind of new evolution, this pivot point that I think we're at today in the cyber threat? There is no time to lose on what can we be doing better working with our partners across borders to address these threats. The Justice Department's efforts against ransomware have received considerable attention recently, but the review will extend beyond that particular problem. Justice has also adopted a more aggressive stance toward cybercrime, participating, for example, in an international effort to take down the Emotet botnet. That interest in international cooperation seems likely to continue. According to The Record, the department plans to hire a liaison prosecutor who will be expected to train and develop skills for prosecutors, police, and judges, including through case-based mentoring on transnational organized cybercrime cases, to identify gaps in existing laws, advise legislative bodies on the enactment of effective legislation and amendment of existing laws to increase enforcement efficacy, and to build capacity within the law enforcement agencies to combat transnational organized cybercrime. It's not a new post, but the position has been vacant since December. Whoever's hired for the job... Good hunting. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. 
and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief security officer and also our chief analyst. Rick, always great to have you back. Hey, Dave. So for this season of CSO Perspectives, you've been covering some of the key critical infrastructure verticals, things like finance and healthcare, to see if anything makes them unique in terms of strategy and tactics. What do you have for us this week? Yeah, so thanks for that. On the pro side, we're talking about the energy vertical this week, and we've invited some of our favorite guests to the hash table to get their views. We have Helen Patton, the committee chair to the Cybersecurity Canyon Project, and also she's uh, the advisory CISO for Duo Security at Cisco. That's a mm. title, okay? And, <laughs> and uh, we have my friend Steve Winterfeld, the Akamai advisory CISO, and both of those folks are regulars uh, for our hash table discussions. But also we have a special guest this week, Mark Sachs, currently the Deputy Director of Auburn University's McCrary Institute for Cyber and Critical Infrastructure Security. And they pretty much had every letter in the alphabet for that title. Okay, But mm. in a previous life, he was the Chief Security Officer of the NERC for three years. That's the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. And at the same time, he had oversight of the EISAC, the Electricity Information Sharing and Analysis Center. So he fits right into the energy discussion. Yeah, I mean, that is a that is quite the mix of cybersecurity personalities. I'm <laughs> guessing uh, not everybody agreed on everything. How, how'd that go for you? Well, you got that right. There was a major disagreement about whether or not the energy vertical would move completely over to a cloud-delivered infrastructure-as-code kind of environment 
a way that all the other verticals seem to be moving towards. Now, no spoilers here, but I bet you can guess <laughs> who was the guy that was against that idea. Hmm. Hint, hint. Hmm. It might be <laughs> the NERC guy. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, so CSO Perspectives, uh, is this something that is reserved uh, for the cool kids over uh, who have CyberWire Pro subscriptions, or, or what, what's going on over on the ad-supported side this week? Well, you know, Dave, we've been talking the last couple of weeks uh, about the release of CSO Perspectives episodes from Season 1 to the public for free. Now, these have ads, and if you're like me, you avoid ads like the plague. And, <laughs> and that is one now of the main— yeah, I know. We have to make money somehow, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh, but it's one of the re- main reasons you want to subscribe to CW Pro. You get all the CyberWire content without the ads, right? But right. for for yeah. this week uh, on the free side, we're doing a bit of an indulgence for me, okay? Instead of tackling some thorny cybersecurity issue, we're talking about my four favorite cybersecurity novels. And I have some mm. very specific criteria for what makes a good book in this genre. Yeah, I, you know, I'm actually glad to hear it because um, so many novels that I've read that have some sort of cybersecurity element, and I'd say this extends even to pop TV and movies, they have sort of what I call a, a Harry Potter version of cyber, <laughs> which is, you know, they don't really explain what's happening, but somehow magically and mystically, they're able to break into highly classified government buildings. You know, they say things like, magnify and, you know and, and I, we're in. i'm in yeah right 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 <laughs> i think we I mean, may have watched the same shows <laughs> yeah i mean it's all good fun but of course it's not terribly realistic well i'm totally with you on that all right i, I want to be able to hand a good novel to my grandma where the cybersecurity mm. is realistic and tell her hey grandma this is what i do you know sort of <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough All right. Well, Rick Howard, he is the host of CSO Perspectives over on CyberWire Pro. And we've got uh, advertiser-supported episodes that are being put out there as well. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. And joining me once again is Betsy Carmelite. She's a senior associate at Booz Allen Hamilton. Betsy, always great to have you back. Um, you know, one of the things that's really moved along as we've all been experiencing a lot of the lockdowns with COVID-19 is the explosion of telehealth. You know, I know for me and some of my family members, have really been taking advantage of and enjoying uh, the ability to connect with our medical professionals remotely. It's uh, There are a lot of conveniences there, but... I suppose the uh, cyber criminals have also taken notice of this. Uh, they're not holding back either. No, the, the premise here around this concern is that massive shift at scale to a remote delivery model brought on by the global health crisis. Um, and that's that rapid expansion of U.S. telehealth services, um, especially in 2020. And we think it's unlikely to contract even years after the pandemic clears. There will be a permanence to telehealth given its its convenience. We also believe this will change the way cyber criminals target health data at scale. And um, I'd like to touch on some of the characteristics of telehealth platforms and infrastructures. Uh, we know that telehealth uses electronic information and telecommunications technologies to remotely provide clinical health care, patient and professional health-related education, public health and administration services. This is also how medical collaboration is happening among hospitals, rapidly mm. treating COVID patients or discussing transplant surgeries, for example. 
Some of the core technologies used in these services are video conferencing, store and forward imaging, streaming media, and these are typically accessible via the internet, including wired and wireless communications. With Hmm. telemedicine, this typically includes clinical care, treatment of chronic conditions, medication management, specialist consultations. It can be considered a subset within broader telehealth services. Notably, both telemedicine and telehealth share similar technology, infrastructure, and weaknesses. And we're looking at once disparate databases used for billing and patient data now being aggregated and also platforms for patient-provider collaboration and communication. One of the data points to bring this into really practical focus is prior to the public health emergency, in a given week, 13,000 Medicare recipients used fee-for-service telehealth. By the last week of April 2020, that increased to 1.7 million recipients. So lots lots of data and infrastructure to exploit. Wow. Yeah, I had no... uh, I I did not expect that degree of growth. So um, what specifically are you expecting and experiencing the cyber criminals to be targeting here? We believe mass adoption of this technology opens doors to perhaps not a new cybercrime focus, but a renewed focus at scale with an emphasis on stealing patient data primarily for monetary benefit. And the theft of patient or hospital data can enable cybercrime in a few ways. First, it can enable billing fraud over the phone using stolen information to demand payment for physician-ordered medical devices or fake medical debt collection, or cyber criminals compare stolen patient numbers with falsified provider data to submit fraudulent claims with insurers. It also enables ransomware operators who prey on hospitals and medical providers, hoping that the threat of encrypted patient data motivates that payment. Telemedicine will also be a significant target for attackers looking to to gain from the value of critical data stored on managed service providers and local cloud instances. We saw a few companies like GE Health, Google, and Microsoft launch cloud-based systems for medical device management and telehealth services in the last year. And finally, we see it targeting remote patient monitoring devices. These are RPM devices. Traditionally, providers deploy patient monitoring systems in a medical facility but RPM systems are deployed at a patient's home. Providers can use uh, device data to treat acute conditions and chronic illness, but these devices must maintain the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of patient data to ensure patient safety. Uh, Telehealth security is really a patient safety issue with potentially catastrophic risks for data vulnerabilities and device failures. How do you see us facing uh, this uh, potential onslaught here? I mean, are are are, are those the proper tools and and techniques in place to to make sure that people are safe? I think this last year has has shown us that the the rise in the need for security is essential to make this a successful long term platform for clinicians and patients. Uh, we we offer a few recommendations for for those in the healthcare industry, really at this transformative point 
in the clinician to patient experience. First, looking at the telehealth strategy and architecture with this rapid rise of the technology implementation, often um, there's a lack of clinical and technical integration. So healthcare systems should develop or refine an enterprise telehealth strategy with security considerations built into every layer of the telehealth ecosystem, um, from cybersecurity infrastructure um, to the supply chain, software, endpoint provisioning, et cetera. Um, Companies also really need to evaluate third-party vendor security. Healthcare is highly regulated um, as an industry, and there are multiple standards in place to protect patients in healthcare. The health crisis has really introduced a load of new vendors with less experience navigating complex healthcare security regulations. And there are, there are organizations like the National Consortium of Telehealth Research, Resource Centers and the American Medical Association who provide checklists with security and privacy considerations for reviewing vendors. Um, also, at a tactical level, firms need to evaluate the vendor's security controls, intrusion systems, and policies on accidental disclosure of data. And finally, organizations should implement user authentication. We've talked a lot about the value of patient data today. Robust user authentication measures are a necessity to, to ensure patient IDs and personally identifiable information stay secure. All right. Well, Betsy Carmelite, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ha! Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. And check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.